Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Good morning. Good morning, church family. I have loved running into so many of you at Costco or going for walks, and it's such a sweet treat for me to see some of you face to face. And I told someone, it's so good to see you. It feels like it has been forever. And they said, yeah, but I kind of see you every other week on my TV on Sunday. So I know while you might be seeing us regularly, the staff and I, we miss seeing you in person. We've been in a series on the Psalms over the last several weeks, and we have heard psalms of joy and psalms of praise, as well as psalms of lament. There are psalms for every season of our lives. And as Walter Brueggemann, who's a great theologian, he talks about the kind of psalm we'll be in this morning, a psalm of disorientation. It's a psalm that expresses the response to a faithful God when their world is broken and their sense of peace is shattered. Disorientation is this in-between. There doesn't seem to be a light at the end of the tunnel. And in this tunnel, our relationship with God is vulnerable and it's frustrating and we desperately want answers. So while sometimes these Psalms sound like Psalm 13, which says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? They can scare us because they share this raw honesty. But we really need these Psalms. They're the kind of psalms that move us through lament and hopefully to a deeper faith. Let's pray together. God, speak as only you can speak. May we return to you this morning as our one true love. Holy Spirit, may your presence dwell in and amongst us. Amen. Today, we are digging into Psalm 25, a psalm of disorientation. And in my personal Bible at Psalm 25, it comes with a little note that I wrote. It says, July 16th, 2015, HB. And HB stands for houseboats. This was the first summer that I led with CPC on houseboats. And it was a really, really difficult week. On night one, as you're getting to know your small group, I remember we were sitting on top of our boat and we were sharing and one girl confesses to an addiction to pornography and two others share about sexual assault and trauma. These girls were just 14 years old. And in my Bible, there's nothing else underlined in Psalm 25, just that note with that date. But as I've read and reread this Psalms many times over the last several weeks, I can see why I clung to it then and why I still need it today. Psalm 25 is a Psalm of dependence and guidance Through a broken prayer and most certainly a broken spirit, the psalmist believes that dependence on God is only possible through knowing God. When we deeply know God, it changes how we engage with him. So Psalm 25, it gets us out of what may be a very comfortable position of prayer, and it puts us in a new place, in an uncomfortable position. Tim Keller said, the Psalms lead us to do what the psalmists do. So let's do what the author David does here. As he approaches God, he doesn't approach him in the hopes of moving God, but to move his own heart. Let me say that again. We are to approach God, not in order for us to move God on any one issue or outcome, but so that we may be moved. Moved where? Well, moved more and more in line with God. How often do we really do that? How often do we enter into prayer with the expectation that we will be moved and not the other way around? I confess that my prayer life 
It needs to be marked by a prayer and a heart that cries, thy will be done, more than it says, my will be done. Psalm 25, it tells us that what it can and what it should look like to trust Jesus. Like David, we are people after God's own heart, yet we're stained with sin. We have hidden and we have questioned God. And also like David, we seek to follow God's ways and seek his path, but we're unsure because we've felt that life has been unsteady and it's been difficult. The answers have not always been there on where to go to college, when college is gonna look radically different than we imagined, or what does it look like to seek the peace of a city or a nation when injustices have been socially accepted for far too long? Or how do we show kindness in a world that requires our smiles to be masked and our touch to be withheld? Relying on our own wisdom to navigate life, it pales in comparison to the wisdom of God. I can think of a lot of times in my own life where wisdom didn't turn out well, or I've been careless, actually, when I responded to people in need. My wisdom alone, it usually, it doesn't lead to successful outcomes, but we see that in the Psalms, the importance of trusting God's infinite wisdom above all else. The language the psalmist uses to convey wisdom is often in the form of poetry or song. So as an acrostic poem, each verse of Psalm 25, it begins with a sequential letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So something that's absolutely lost on us in our English translation, but it would be as if the poem were written using the ABCs. Something like this poem I found online about friends. Accepts you as you are, believes in you, calls just to say hi. But imagine it kept going all the way to Z. David covered the entire alphabet, almost as if to cover all the ways his language could convey his prayer to God. He used every letter available to him to cry out to God. Amongst many things, Psalm 25 teaches us three that we will focus on this morning. Posture, petitions, and promise. From the first word of the poem, the psalmist indicates the kind of posture we're to begin with. Look at verse one. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Four short words in, and we have the direction we're headed in, towards our Lord. Our posture is sustained then by keeping our eyes on God. As verse 15 says, my eyes are ever towards the Lord. And as we focus on God, we offer something up. Again, we come, not, we come to prayer not to move God, but in order that we would be moved. And often that looks like this. Our palms are open and up rather than clenched and downward facing. The ESV uses soul. It says the soul is uplifted. And the NLT says my life. And in Hebrew, there are many words for soul and life, but they all point to our vitality. We are actively lifting ourselves up and giving God our whole being. It's not just a posture of giving a part of ourselves to God, but giving all of us. We bring all of us to God. Next year, our posture acknowledges our sin. You see, the more we fix our gaze on God, the more we see that we are distinct from God and he is very distinct from us. He is holy, he is worthy, he is all-knowing and all-powerful. And we may think we're some of those things just in our beliefs, but actually more in our actions. We try to hold on to control. We, we think we know what's best for us, but we can never measure up to the nature and character of God. In the parable, there's a parable in Luke 18, and it shares about a Pharisee who is looking up and praying at God in the temple. And he's exalting himself. And he holds up his own righteousness next to God, and he feels worthy of his place there. 
But in the same space, there's a tax collector, a man who is despised by so many, and he can't even look up to God. All he says is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. His physical gaze may not have been heavenward, but his heart was. We must humble our hearts to see our own sin. David, who wrote this psalm, he didn't hide the fact that he'd sin. He acknowledges his sin in light of who God is. Look at verse six through eight. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. The appeal David makes in verses seven and eight to God is not based on his own performance, but it's based on the Lord's love and mercy in verse six. And as he holds his own life up to the light of God, he recognizes he is truly a sinner, but God, right? God is shaped by God's own character. The psalmist is saying, God, look at me, not based on my past, not based on my lack of faith in the past, but solely based on your steadfast love and mercy. Those things, mercy and steadfast love, those have always been in God's nature since the beginning of time. He hasn't changed. We, though, we change quickly, almost as quick as the fog rolls in across the bay. When I look back at my past, the sins of my youth, as David calls them, I am so glad that God does not base his love and mercy for me on those sins. There's still a lot of people here at CPC and in our community who remember me in my more youthful days. And I was talking with one of them a couple years ago, someone who was a leader in the middle school group when I was there. And she said, you know, Amanda, back when you were in middle school, you really weren't all that. Like you might've thought you were, but you kind of had an attitude. And I was shocked. I really was because my memory is so clouded by other things at that time because my mood really did change like the weather. So it's a miracle that I lost that attitude along the way, or at least I hope and I pray that I did. But the point is this. The point is that if we're to do as the psalmist has done when we come to God in prayer, then we're to have to posture of seeking mercy because we are sinners. We trust that it's because of God's character, his faithfulness, his steadfast love. That is why he guides us. Lastly, our posture is one of waiting. We'll see this in verse three. It says, indeed, None who wait for the Lord shall be put to shame. And then in verse five, lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I will wait all the day long. And verse 21, may integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. And in verse 21, the New Living Translation says, all the day long, I put my hope in you. David is willing to wait. He is hoping that the Lord is who he says he is that the chaos in front of him is not the end of the story. Again, prayer is not a way to move God, but to move ourselves. When we pray, when we pray just to move God, waiting is not a part of our vocabulary. After we pray the same prayers years after years, it can feel exhausting. We can be tired of waiting. When we've prayed for things like healing and answers and clarity or for someone just to change, but the most faithful people that I know are people who pray continually. They pray for years. They pray fervently. What happens is that as they pray and they wait on the Lord, it leads to expectancy and it leads to hope and that leads to trust and that leads to patience with God. It changes the heart of the one who is praying. 
I had this student and she's a friend and she says, waiting on the Lord is always fruitful. So when she made the difficult decision to not go to a college she thought was her dream school, she said that phrase. And when she saw all of her friends going away to four-year universities, having so much fun, and she didn't go, she said that phrase. And when she finally found the school and community that God had for her, that he was calling her to, she said, waiting on the Lord is always fruitful. We see people in scripture who do not wait on the Lord, like Abraham and Sarah. But we also see people in scripture who wait on God's guidance, like the prophets. I'm certain that if we posture ourselves to wait for the Lord, whether that be for answers or for him to change our heart and our habits, it's always going to be fruitful. Okay, I know we just spent a lot of time on our posture, but how we posture ourselves before God in prayer, it says everything. It shapes how and what we pray for. It is the primary way, the primary thing to acknowledge as we approach our King. And the way we approach God is followed by petitions we offer. Petitions go hand in hand with waiting on the Lord. David petitions for guidance, for knowing God, and he petitions for forgiveness and protection. In each of those, his petitions, they're motivated by a deep longing to move out of that stage of disorientation and into something new. And that's basically what a petition is, right? There's a problem, there's a desired outcome that's drafted, and then the petition is there to form change. And in my inbox over the last several weeks, I've received so many petitions to see change for a problem that a community or an individual has seen. And with the click of a button, I can just add my name to that petition and I can join the petitioners in their pursuit for change. So when we petition God, it's the same. We have a problem. We have a desired outcome we'd like. We desire to see change in our lives. Let's look at verse four through five to see the first petition that David says. Make me to know your paths, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. David asked God to make him know God's ways, his paths, his truth. He wants to be taught by God about God. Rather than just conform to God's laws, he wants to internalize God's words and be educated in the way of God. To follow the psalmist, we don't just need to study Hebrew or Greek or don't, we shouldn't busy ourselves with godly activity. We're to immerse ourselves in the way of Christ. Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message translation, says it this way in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Are you tired, worn out, burnt out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take real rest. Walk with me and work with me. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. The way of Jesus, it invites us into an active participation. Did you hear that? Come to me, get away with me, walk with me, work with me, keep company. Those are all active words. Let us become as the first Christians were called followers of the way the way of Jesus, the way of the gospel, the way of steadfast love and mercy and justice. This is how prayer moves us. It moves us into a current and into ways that are not our own. The second petition that David makes is for forgiveness and deliverance from trouble. Look at verse two. Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. 
And as we already saw in verse seven, the psalmist petitions God to not remember his past sins. And then verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt for it is great. And then finally, verses 16 to 20, turn to me and be gracious to me for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. Notice this juxtaposition between the psalmist's enemies and then his sins. They both bring him trouble and from both he is seeking freedom from. His posture of acknowledging his own sins and for David that's acknowledging his adultery and his murder, it's allowed him to then ask that God would forgive his sins. David does this and he does it in a way that expresses both waiting and asking. Just because we wait on the Lord, that doesn't mean that we don't ask. And just because we ask of the Lord, that doesn't mean we don't also wait patiently for him to deliver on his promises. Both together are faithful responses to God. We don't know who David's enemies are in verse two and 18, but we do sense that he's persecuted. He's clearly persecuted. He says that he's alone. He's afflicted. He has a troubled heart. He's in distress. He fears that shame is gonna overtake him. Do you feel that at all? Can you relate to being lonely? Has your heart ever been overwhelmed? Have you ever been overcome with shame that makes you feel like you wanna hide and run from God? I can answer yes to all of those things. Yes, I have been lonely when I seriously started to pursue Jesus in high school. And yes, my heart has been overwhelmed this week as I watch the news. And yes, I've thought my shame could hide me from God. But as I've truly reflected on what it means to have enemies, the way David talks about it, I realize I don't have anyone that I consider an enemy. There's no one I know who wants to see me suffer or who has hatred against me and I against them. I've never had to hide from enemies the way David has, but there are people right now who do, whose family for generations, for centuries have endured violence and hatred and they were made to feel ashamed for the color of their skin and their culture. I have dear friends who have been made to feel less than, some by active enemies and some by more passive and dismissive enemies. The sins of omission, like not pursuing justice or not correcting an oppressor, are just as serious as the sins of commission, things like active violence. We believe that God is near to the brokenhearted and that he comforts those who mourn. Let it be our prayer that God would have mercy on those who who know what it's like to be surrounded by enemies, and for those of us who have ignored the enemies of others for far too long. As we heard last week in Psalm 139, when Pastor Tim shared, search me and stretch me. And as David prayed for God to forgive the sins of his past, we too need this. We need God to search us and root out the sins of our past that we have ignored. May we petition God on behalf of those who are suffering And as we heard a few weeks ago in Psalm 77, may we also enter into suffering alongside our brothers and sisters. When we posture ourselves correctly and then we petition the Lord diligently, we're reminded of his promises. And in Psalm 25, David shares one of the most foundational promises to who God is. And he uses the Hebrew word hesed, 
It's used 240 times in the Old Testament, mainly in the Psalms. And the majority of the time, it's used to describe a relationship between God and his people. The English translates hesed as loving kindness or steadfast love, grace, or mercy. And in this psalm alone, we see it several times used to translate steadfast love. In verses 6 and 7, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your hesed, your steadfast love. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your hesed, steadfast love, remember me. Then verse 10, and all the paths of the Lord are hesed, steadfast love, and faithfulness. The psalmist is sure, absolutely sure of God's steadfast love, that throughout all of history, all of God's actions testify to his chesed. So it's not only appropriate for us to respond, it's, it's required that we see that God has a promise of a steadfast love. And once we recognize that, we find hope in it and we can trust in it and we can proclaim it through our prayers. God's chesed is the best promise that we could ever, ever receive. Will Kynes, he's a biblical studies professor at Samford University, and he describes hesed as going both vertically as well as horizontally. And so he talks about how there's a promise of steadfast love and mercy that extends vertically between us and God. And we see it repeated in Psalm 136. It says, for his hesed, steadfast love, endures forever. And it also extends horizontally, right, between us, one another. And we see that in Micah 6, 8. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to chesed, love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? So the ultimate intersection between a vertical and a horizontal chesed, it's the cross. It's the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. In this act, God radically demonstrates through Jesus his covenant, his promised chesed, his promised steadfast love and grace to his people. But not because of our past faithfulness, but because of his unchanging character. The promise of God's steadfast love, of his mercy, of his loving kindness is one that is a permanent element in the midst of our heart and our world. We need that promise to hold on to. So three things this morning we found in Psalm 25, amongst many other things, is posture, petitions, and promise. What is your posture with God? As we close, I'm inviting you to take an inventory. How are you standing before the Lord this morning? Secondly, how will you petition God to be led in his way? And where do you need to know and remember more of God's promise of steadfast love? The psalmist leads us to do what the psalmist does. So we can't read the Psalms or really any of the Bible, close our Bibles and move on. That doesn't work. These prayers, they invite us, they beg us to replicate what the psalmist has already done and model it for us. I've been taking part in an alpha class over the last several months on Zoom, and I've never done it before, and the videos are amazing. And early on in the, in the class, the, one of the first weeks, they talked about prayer. And they shared this quote by Corey Ten Boom. And she said, when the train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and you trust the driver. I remember one time we were traveling in Europe and we went on the Channel train, which goes between London and Paris. And I had heard about this train and it 
goes underwater with this new technology and it would take you really fast from one place to another. And it sounded a little dangerous going underwater on a train, um, but it sounded like an adventure. And so when you first show up and you get on the train, it's above ground and you ride for a while and you look out the window and you see just beautiful picturesque scenery. And then suddenly, just like that, without warning, it's dark. And obviously there are lights on the train, but you're still underwater for 22 miles. And suddenly, when you lose sight of your surroundings with no warning, it can be unsettling, and your eyes have to adjust for a minute. And on the train, it's 14 minutes long that you're underwater. But as a kid, you don't know, or really as anyone, you don't know how long the darkness is going to last. There are no windows to distract you. No, all you can do is, as Corey Ten Boom said, trust the driver. Trust that he is still behind the wheel and that he knows the way forward. I want to invite you um, as we move into worship through song to reflect, to meditate on Psalm 25. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, may the words of Psalm 25 dwell in our hearts. May we posture ourselves before you, before your throne. May we adjust. May we be uncomfortable. And I pray that we would hold fast to the promise of your steadfast love. Do what only you can do in this time, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.